eBay would be one example and Google is another example. They heavily, heavily make tons of money off of fraud. Visa, MasterCard, they don't want any fraud. They definitely do. <laughs> they make tens of billions of dollars off that. Why would I try and fix a system that we make billions of dollars on? Like you can be really, really good at crime and mostly how people get caught is There is a situation, it's actually the very largest uh, type of fraud on the internet that I'm aware of currently, it's called surf fraud. And it's basically, let's say I have a tax refund and it's on average, it's going to be like three or $4,000 from the government or something on average, right? You know, some right. are huge, some small, none, you know, uh, but on average, let's say it's about three or $4,000. Well, what these fraudsters do is they get enough information about uh, an individual that they can file the taxes on behalf of the victim. And instead of that refund going to the victim, it goes to them. And so, or the, or a proxy or, you know, some, some dude in another country who can go pick it up. Um, so this turns out to be an enormous, uh, amount of money, about $4 billion a year. And the only reason we really knew about it, I mean, I'm sure individuals knew about it and I'm sure the IRS knew about it, but the reason why the kind of larger security community now knows about it is because uh, of this of these two whistleblowers uh, who went after them. Um, and the reason they found out about it is because one day into it's going along and their chargeback ratios for uh, people swiping credit cards is, you know, whatever it is, 0.1%. What, what is Intuit? I'm sorry. Uh, Intuit uh, runs TurboTax um, uh, and uh, QuickBooks Online, I think. Okay. I, 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 I think QuickBooks Online is the one that I'm talking about specifically, though. Um, but they own a bunch of stuff. At the time, they also owned a bunch of banks and stuff. They're a pretty big uh, financial company. But anyway, so one day, they uh, they noticed their chargeback ratios, the amount of people who called in the Visa MasterCard and said, hey, someone stole my credit card and used it at, uh, at QuickBooks, uh, went from whatever it was, 0.1%, which is typical, to like 10%, like some huge number. And typically when you hit numbers over like, say like six or 7%, Visa MasterCard start finding you like crazy, like hundreds of thousands of dollars a, a day at minimum if you're a small company and maybe millions if you're a big company. So is this noticeable amount of backlash from Visa MasterCard because they want it to stop immediately. And so they'll punish the merchant uh, for allowing that amount of fraud to go through. So all of a sudden all this fraud started happening and like, why? What, what, why are they using fake credit cards on our site? Well, it's because at some point, some smart fraud guy um, realized that instead of getting, let's say it's $3,000 on average, instead of taking like $100 out of the refund and giving it into it, you, if you use a stolen credit card instead, um, pay the $100 out of that stolen credit card for, for the utility of that uh, of QuickBooks Online, Suddenly, now you're making uh, $3,000 instead of $2,900. So that that ends up being a sizable amount of cash if you've got enough stolen credit cards. And it turns out there's tons of stolen credit cards out there that they can just buy in bulk, right? So uh, so they're like, well, that's bad. We got to stop that immediately because we're losing a ton of money. So they went and did a whole bunch of research to shut it down. But really, all they really wanted to do was shut down the fake credit card part. They didn't want to stop the the part where they were actually using, still using QuickBooks online to, uh, or TurboTax online. I think it's TurboTax online. Yeah. Uh, the fraudulent transaction through the IRS. Transaction. Exactly. So they went 
and the reason for that is they went back and looked at what what that meant to their bottom line if they were to remove all of that fraud what would it meant and it's about a hundred million dollars to their bottom line a year and what they take home so this isn't small dollars to them you know can you imagine being the security guy inside the company going uh hey um i'd like to shut off a hundred million dollars worth of revenue um like you just no one's going to take you seriously like no that's not a good idea we can't do that so pretty pretty gnarly but that's uh that's one use case for stolen credit cards i i think that there's a whole kind of like way happened um it's still as far as i can tell it's still happening because they're making a hundred million dollars a year what are you going to do you can't turn that tap off um so yeah the hell with those ethics oh well and so now you're thinking well visa and mastercard maybe they care about the problem well so back a little bit earlier than that, I would say about maybe five to 10 years earlier, they bought a company called Cybersource. And Cybersource, basically, think of it kind of like a um, a knob that you can turn. And so you can turn it all the way up and block uh, all, of the, uh, all of the fraud if you want, or you can turn it all the way up and uh allow all the fraud to go through basically right so it's it's a tuning algorithm so uh imagine i basically was telling my system that i would like to stop all the fraud for the first call it six months four months six months something like that because after about six months as a merchant you start seeing what your real fraud ratios are it takes about six months before the fraud goes through the system far enough you'll see all of the chargebacks that will have happened. So six months is about the, um, the magic number. Um, it can go up or down fluctuating if you have new products or services, or if you get a ton more traffic or you know whatever, different kinds of traffic, that might change it. But on average, it's around six months. So after about, call it four months, you can start saying, well, I'm, my chargeback ratios are very low. They're like 0.01% or something, like very, very low. Well, I will turn up the fraud. I will give myself more fraud. By doing that, you're basically saying to Visa and MasterCard, um, our charge track ratios are low enough that I would like to get enough more fraud in that I'm going to make more money. Because not every fraudulent transaction gets uh, a chargeback. Right. It's a, some small fraction of it. Most people do not look at their credit cards. They do not notice an extra $100 here or there or whatever. And even six months might go by and they don't notice it. So as long as they're not racking up tens of thousands of dollars in their credit card bill, no, no one really checks. And so they, it kind of just sneaks through. So, uh, don't so I wish. what's that? I said, don't I wish. <laughs> so imagine now like six months has gone through, gone by and my chargeback ratios are still nice and low. I'll turn up fraud a little bit more and turn it up a little bit more. Right. And so Visa and MasterCard realized quite a few years back that really what they're most focused on, and they should be most focused on, is the retention of their users and util- and how much their users are using uh, Visa and MasterCard. So some of that comes down to most convenient places t- to use it. And some of it comes down to making sure that people don't feel like they have to always call a credit card company and say, My, I've been, it's been stolen again. It's been stolen again. Because that brings down the utility of the credit card to the point where you're not going to use it for really anything that you don't have to because it just gets annoying to have to replace it all the time. And that magic number turns out to be around four, five, six percent or so. So when you start seeing chargeback ratios getting that high, uh, then they're like, well, this becomes a problem for us. 
So they're going to start saying, you need to start turning your fraud down. So they have CyberSource. So they're kind of in on it. I mean, they they know that this fraud's happening. They could get the fraud to 0.01% back. They could make it so it basically doesn't exist if they felt like it. But they also make money on that fraud. It's, you know, <laughs> it's like the merchant makes money, they make money, and the average consumer just doesn't even notice a, a certain low rumble of fraud. Yeah, I was going to say in um, like in mortgages, like they could make mortgages or applying for not just mortgages, but let's say applying for a credit card, applying for any type of a loan, you could make it almost fraud free. Mm -hmm. You know, the problem is it makes it so difficult for the average person at that point. Yeah. It no longer it no longer becomes something that people want to take part in. It, it becomes, so you know, so. What they do instead is they said, look, we're going to, we're going to, you know, the actuaries end up saying, you know, we're going to include that in the, in the interest rate to cover that. So there's a certain amount of, you know, banks do it, um, mortgage companies do it, you know, lenders in general do it, credit card companies do it, you know, they incorporate that there's a certain percentage of fraud that we're okay with that we account for. So it's not like they're losing money. You know, it's not like they're losing huge amounts of money because they've accounted for it and they've, it's like, we've got it set aside. We're going to lose a billion dollars this year. Well, guess what? We set aside a billion point one. We actually made money on the fraud this year. You know what yeah. I mean? So a lot of money. Right. <laughs> kind of the same thing. It's, um, yeah. And that IRS thing, the, the IRS, you know, scam, like mm -hmm. the IRS, you know, they're, they're trying to kind of put a cap on it. Right. And get it under control, but it, it that was going on for decades. Yeah, it's still going. Yeah, it's yeah. going strong. Yeah, I mean, really bad. Like it's still going. It's still going on. They've you know they've done little things. You know, they put they gave you the pin number now. Mm -hmm. and there's little things that they've they've done. But what's really amazing is that, you, you know, if I get your social security number and your you know your social security number, your your address, some basic information on you. And I file before you file, I can get your tax return. Yep. Which is is you know is amazing. A lot of people. It's funny, guys that I talk to locked up about it, and I've had extensive conversations where they're like, "Listen, I'm talking about people that have never had jobs. We're we're applying for uh, their social security. I'm sorry, we're applying for their tax refund." And all I need is like, this is some woman who's got three kids on welfare, hasn't had a job in 10 years. I'll go and give her $300. She'll give me her, her f full name and her social security number. And then I'll go file saying that she made $65,000 last year for some company that she didn't, has never worked for. And she's got a tax refund for $6,500 and I'll get $6,500. They'll put $6,500 on like a prepaid card. Yep. They'll send them the money and then they go and they cash it out and they've given her 300 bucks. She's happy because she can always just say, that wasn't me. What are you talking about? I didn't do that. Right. And so these guys would be buying people's information from all kinds of people, from employers. When people fill out a, a paper application, you know, they've got their full name. They write all their information down. They give it to an employer. With It could be an, any employer could take that. You could go on um, Indeed or or any of these websites and apply and have take uh, applications. Or it could be, you know, I used to run ads in, you know, 
anything, you know, the flyer or, you know, now it would probably be, you could run these ads in um, with Craigslist anywhere and say, Hey, I'm taking free mortgage applications. You know, there's government mon money, government loans available. You know, people would call up, you know, good credit, bad credit, no problem. People would call up and give me all their information. Yeah. You turn around and you file taxes. So <clears throat> yep, there's tons of ways that, you know, not just that, obviously you can go and buy dumps, you know, on, on the, uh, internet obviously yeah. too, but you know, yeah. it, they got to the point. I remember this one guy I had spoken with. I always remember his name. His name was, um, oh gosh, his name was, uh, <laughs> I <don't> remember <laughs> I know no, I can't remember because he had a, a name of, a um, it was, it was, what was his name? Oh shoot. It was, uh. It was like a famous rapper's name at the time. He had the same name as the guy. Uh, oh, it was Rush, something Rush. Because uh, I remember there was the Rush card that they'd come out with. And and he had, uh, he was talking about when he first started doing it, he said that, he said, you'd file 10 of them. He said, nine of them would go through. He said, now two years later, you'd file 10 of them and two would go through. He he was like, but what does it matter? He goes, what did, it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. He said, and what's so funny is that sometimes they wouldn't go through and they would say, like, call the IRS and they'd send, send a letter and say, call the IRS. He said, because he said, no fraudster is going to call the IRS. They just forget about it. Oh, forget about it. He said, I call up. <laughs> Why, where's my tax refund? He said, I'd argue with them and they'd send it. They, they'd go, okay, we'll fix it. We'll take care of it. He goes, because think about it. I have all the information. So- yeah. He'd argue with them. A lot of people think this is this too, which is complete BS. You know, people don't understand how the system works. If I open up a company and I hire you for $80,000 a year, and I'm supposed to have withheld, let's say, $20,000 and then send that money to the IRS, right? For Social Security, Medicare, all these breakdowns, you know, you're federal income tax withholdings. And I'm supposed to send that to the IRS. And then of course I notify the IRS, Hey, I own this company. And I, I took, you know, $20,000 out of, uh, Robert's check and I sent it to you. And then you apply for your tax refund saying, Hey, I work for Matt's company. He took $20,000 out after all my deductions. I'm supposed to get, you know, he over, he took two, he took 20,000 out, but he only should have taken out 15, you owe me $5,000. That's your tax refund. Mm -hmm. Well, what's funny is people think the IRS knows that I have a company and that I took 20,000 out and that they've got a little account somewhere with that 20,000 so they can readily check your statement, you know, your refund with what is in their little coffers. But the truth is they don't know that at all because the no matter what, if you file and say, look, Matt Cox withheld 20,000, you guys owe me five. They can't, let's say I never filed at all. What if I never told them anything? I never sent any money to them. Do they still have to give you the 5,000? Absolutely. They, they have to give you the $5,000. Just because I withheld the money and didn't send it to them doesn't mean that you don't get the money. So the, even if they said, look, we don't know who Matt Cox is and he never sent us 20. We're not giving you five. They're not allowed to do that by law. They owe you that money. They're, they're issues with me. So a lot of people think, Hey, well, I can't take, get a tax refund. How you can't, I don't even work. So no, I'm not at Jeff. I'm not in jeopardy of anybody claiming my tax refund. 
because I don't work. I never worked, made 80,000. Matt Cox never withheld 20 and he never sent it to the IRS. So I'm not in jeopardy if someone gets my social security number and files, but that's not true. You're still in jeopardy. They still will send you the money. You know, the system doesn't work <laughs> the way people think, which is, no. which is what made me, um, made my crime easy to do is because most people think that the left hand knows what the right hand's doing and they just, they just don't. Yeah. So it, you know, just like, it, you know, people, they think, oh, well, Visa, Visa, MasterCard, you know, credit cards, you know, America's, but they don't want any fraud. They definitely do. <laughs> they make tens of billions of dollars. Off of that. Oh, I'll bet you believe same everything. With, same thing with the, well, so back in my world, there, there, there's there's kind of two examples I use pretty regularly. So eBay would be one example and Google is another example where they heavily, heavily make tons of money off of fraud. So most fraud eBay does not make any money off of, so they will try to stop it. And and for those who uh, know nothing about eBay, their fraud systems are probably 10 years ahead of your bank. They're way better than everybody else, like way better. In fact, all the other companies like the Googles of the world, all those other companies, they all learned from eBay. All the employees who left, they they taught them how to do it. Uh, eBay right. was way ahead of everybody else. Well, they had the budget. Uh, they had the budget. It was it was one third of the company was, was trust and safety. So it was it was an enormous amount of work put into it. So their fraud systems were amazing. But there's one type of fraud, as an example, that there was basically nothing. In fact, there was literally one, I think it was maybe one, maybe as many as five total lines of code trying to protect this one type of fraud, which is one of the most common kinds of fraud. You're like, well, why would that be? Why would they change? Why would everything else has tens of thousands of lines of code trying to protect against it? And many different sub features and different programs running and all kinds of things happening and people dedicated to focus on it. Uh, but why one of the most common is there just five lines of code that no one seems particularly interested in fixing. And that particular piece of code uh, only asks, uh, are you bidding on this item from the same IP address that you uh, put the item up? Um, <clears throat> so let's say I put up a Beanie Baby back when those things were popular uh, for like five bucks or something. There's a kind of a kind of a nice Beanie Baby. Maybe it typically goes for like seven bucks or something. Um, and I say my minimum bid is five. And then I see that maybe I've got one person who bid on it for like, you know, 530 or something. Well, that person's interested. I know I've got someone who's interested. So I can bid on myself and say, well, how about for 545 or something? And they're like, oh, someone, oh, I'm bidding on something. Drum the bike up. Right. Yeah, it's called shill bidding is, is the actual technical term for it. Um, and you can do this programmatically. You don't need to do it with your hands. Uh, there's lots of different tools out there to do it. But um, but the simplest way is to do it with, on the same IP address. So you log into eBay and then you log out of eBay and you create another account and you log into that other account and you're just bidding on the item yourself. And if you accidentally buy the item, you don't really spend particularly large amount of money because you're not actually using PayPal. You're not actually wiring it to yourself. You're not shipping. So you don't have all, you don't incur all those costs. You only incur the cost that eBay, uh, the listing cost, which is timing. So, uh, so you make tons of money if you succeed and you lose a tiny amount if you fail. So 
people are like, well, this is bullshit. Like, obviously this person is the same person. They're logging, they're logging in from the same IP address like 10 minutes afterwards or whatever. So, and eBay had to say, we have some control over this problem. And so they put the absolute minimum amount of effort possible into it just to right. make sure that it's been dealt with. Because if you think about it from eBay's perspective, two things happen. They make a percentage of the of the upside uh, on the PayPal side if the actual deal goes through, and they make the listing fee. So the more of these transactions that go through at a higher rate, the better. Back when they owned PayPal, they don't own PayPal anymore. But Yeah, there's no real downside. There's no downside from eBay's perspective at really at all, except if... What ends up happening if you do this, if you play this game enough times, pay it millions and millions of times, what ends up happening is the the rough price for items goes up by a market amount, uh, especially for commodity items. That's not so much for like uh, like um, stuff you might find in a swap meter, you know, a flea market or you know, antique store or something. Those those one off items that are super rare, they'll tend to always be whatever they are. Uh, but the commodity items like toothbrushes or, you know, light bulbs or whatever that you could buy on Amazon will start going up to what you'd expect them to go for on other platforms. So they're no, there's no longer the cheap place to buy commodity. Right. Um, yeah. I can just go to Walmart and pick it up. Like, yeah. And, and, and maybe for cheaper. Um, whereas before eBay was cheaper because I'd have like 10 extra light bulbs and I'm like, ah, I get selling some light bulbs, but now light bulbs in general are so overpriced and there's so much show bidding going on um, playing it, playing this game out millions and millions of times that um, yes, there might be a couple light bulbs. I, if I can just sneak it in or whatever, but typically it's always going to be the same price as everybody else or maybe even worse. So not a great, not a great long-term strategy, but great in the short term. Uh, and then the other one is Google. So Google has kind of a, you know, pretty, in my opinion, a pretty sneaky business model. Most people are not aware that they, they are not a search engine. They're an ad engine. Um, if you go on on Google and you search for like hotels in Miami or something, there is virtually nothing on the page that is actually a search result. It is all like links to other Google products. There's maybe a map with a whole bunch of, uh, of you know, properties that they want to send people to that's, that's theirs. Um, maybe there's reviews, you know, there's 20 things that aren't that thing, a bunch of ads, you know, a bunch of stuff that isn't a search result. So search results are actually so far down now, people don't even realize that there are almost no search results on Google anymore. Um, unless you really know what you're doing and you kind of scroll down and you get past all of that stuff at the top. And even then it's kind of hard to tell. Um, but if it's like a, like what's you know, what's my IP address or something, or what's the translation or whatever, you may never, ever hit another website. You're going to stay on Google and you're going to do the translation right there. So they're, they're getting, they're trying to keep people on Google, uh, as much as possible. And the reason they're doing that is because you make a lot of money on ads and their, uh, their ad engine represents, and I don't know the current numbers, but something along the lines of a hundred billion dollars a year. So that's, that's a lot of ads. Uh, that's a lot of ads. And they make nothing on the search engine, zero. Um, there's no money to be made at all on it. They make a little bit of money on their search. They had a search appliance that they, they had for a while and you know some some other minor products. But really, it's it's uh, YouTube ads and Google ads, uh, AdSense and AdWords. And so um, back when, this is probably about 20 years ago now, um, I was on the advisory board of a company called Click Forensics. 
And Click Forensics, uh, their entire business model was, we believe that there's a lot more fraud going on inside uh, Google's um, uh, ad engine than people realize. And I knew that to be true because before that I had worked at a company uh, called ValueClick. And ValueClick was by far at the time had the best anti-fraud systems of any of those companies, of all the you know, double clicks and fly casts of the world, anybody who's putting these advertisements on, on websites. Um, and, and I, the reason we were the best is because I infiltrated the click fraud groups and I was actually inside one of the guys trading codes and getting them to click on my ads and I click on their ads and, you know, so, uh, you'd be making a good amount of money. And, um, and so I knew that none of the other guys had anything close to what we were building. Now, Google was slightly better than the average because they, through an acquisition of DoubleClick, uh, owned part of ValueClick. So they actually got the ad, the, uh, the anti-fraud engine that we had built. So they were slightly better than everybody else. But I knew that that system was still not very good and very heavily based on a guy like me infiltrating click fraud groups, which I knew that they weren't going to do after I left. So, uh, so when I joined click forensics, they're like, we think we can find a lot of fraud. I'm like, Oh, I know you will. And, and I gave them some ideas on how to do it. And they were finding massive amounts of fraud going through the systems. So for example, there was a piece of code called ClickBot a and ClickBot a would just click on ads all over the internet. Just, you would just surf the internet, clicking on ads all day. And so you could never tell who's who what the original ad that they wanted to click on was because enough ads were getting clicked on that you couldn't tell which one was fraudulent, which one wasn't. So they couldn't just ban people outright. Uh, that didn't really work. And from Google's perspective, they're also like, well, that's a whole bunch more revenue for us because they make right. a cash for every ad clicked. Um, and so um, basically they changed their name, Click Forensics changed the name to Adometry. And I'll give you one guess who bought Adometry. I don't know. Google. Google? Okay. <laughs> I thought we were talking about Google. So Google bought the only company out there who is trying their best. And I wouldn't say they were the best. They were that good, but still pretty good at identifying fraudulent click fraud going through, uh, going through the, the Google uh, ecosystem. We now estimate that, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another quick story to give you some idea of why I know what I know. So I was doing some research on something com completely unrelated. I was trying to figure out how likely it is that somebody will click on something in the browser. Uh, so if you hide some feature like deep in the browser, you have to file settings, blah, blah, blah. How likely is it that they'll click on the thing? And in particular, I was interested in this one particular uh, thing that would stop uh, advertisers from tracking you. Um, uh, and it was a, it was a kind of a failed idea from the beginning. It was, it was never going to work, but it was an interesting use case because uh, anyone who heard about it wanted to turn on to stop people from from tracking them. And so uh, so I knew that Internet Explorer was something like, I don't know, uh, like five clicks or, or four or five clicks or something like that. Uh, Firefox was three clicks and Google was something like seven clicks. They, of course, they wouldn't want anyone to you know stop tracking them because they make all their money on tracking people and advertising to them. Uh, so that was my conjecture is that you're going to see uh, Firefox was going to be a very high amount of people uh, using this uh, particular HP header. Um, you know, we'd see Internet Explorer kind of middle of the pack and Chrome would be way dead last and uh, exponentially uh, less people turning on this particular feature. 
So I contacted a banner advertising company that I know, and I'm like, hey, I want all your locks. And anyone else asking this question, they'd say, go to hell. But it's me. And so they're like, okay, well, we'll give them to you. And I'm like, I want this very specific slice of data. I want to see user agent and that this one particular header is turned on or not. And it turned out that Internet Explorer was like 10%. I'm like, 10%? Like, all the others were really, really low. Like, why is it 10%? Like, that can't be right. That number doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Unless, unless Microsoft itself had rolled out some patch to turn it on, there's no way they would ever be that high. It should be like 0.001% or something. Like, crazy, crazy low. Okay. I was going to say, do people just, people know this is even possible or, or you're saying, were they advertising it? Well, I mean, the part of their know, advertising, Hey, well, you could do this. It's easy. People who know, know, and that's the thing is like, it's such a small group of people. There's no chance. Think about how many billions of people on the planet. I think it's like at that time it was maybe 3 billion or no, 2 billion or so internet users on the planet. Are you telling me that you got what is it, two, I can't even do the math. Uh, was it 20 million? Is that right? 20 million people to click on six buttons or whatever it was to get there? Like, there's no way. Like, no, no way. <laughs> to educate them to do it and to get them to do it, it impossible. Never, gonna, never, ever, ever going to happen unless it was automated somehow. And I'm right. Like, you know, so, so it's one of two things happen. This is either not true and their, their logs are somehow messed up or there or Microsoft did something weird. So I did a bunch of research trying to figure out if Microsoft did something weird. They didn't. Uh, I know the guys over at Internet Explorer. Uh, I'm like, did is, is there any reason this could be the case? Like, nope. Um, so it turns out, I, it kind of just came to me. I'm like, holy shit, that's just how much fraud that this advertising system is getting. Because what happened is, and, and they might get be getting more, but at least 10% of it, somebody, some hacker somewhere, dumped their uh dumped what their browser looks like when they're when they're legitimately doing a request and they had it turned on so like so they just copy pasted what their what the request looked like and they're sending it out billions of times and clicking on a bunch of ads and so, so that drove just, that number up so it drove that number up to like 10 percent or whatever despite the fact that it absolutely is impossible like truly impossible but now we finally had some real telemetry i'm like that means that I mean, and that's a, the low bar. That's just what we know from that one mistake that that one hacker made. Um, at least 10% of the amount of clicks going through the internet on ads are fraudulent. That means if, if it's a $100 million a year uh, advertising business for Google, that means $10 billion a year is being wasted uh, on ad fraud. Well, then I'm, I'm sure they immediately fixed it. <laughs> they immediately well, ethically, we don't feel comfortable with this. Yeah. This, isn't for, this isn't right. Yeah. Um, I wonder why he had that on his um, browser. Is it, I wonder if oh, it helped. He was a hacker. He's like me. Right. So he's trying to, I know he's trying to hide his, his, um, his you know, area or, you know, whatever location, but why did he include it? You're saying it was a mistake, but is it possible that he did it because every time those bots were clicking, he didn't want those them to be located either like you're like no, now suddenly you know all this information's coming from this one area actually that's a, that's a really good theory uh that could have been the case you're right um i suspect it was probably more likely to be uh just a flat out mistake um based on what i saw but you never know maybe maybe there was some additional things there where he's like maybe you know there's a possibility that some of these ad engines might actually respect this header 
and stop tracking me. And if that's the case, great. It costs me nothing to include this extra, you know, couple of bytes of information. So either way, yeah. Um, I'm not saying that Google doesn't do anything to stop fraud, but I am saying that whatever numbers they're reporting are intentionally as, as eBay's are, they have no incentive to fix this problem. None. Right. Um, and the only way that this gets bad is if enough companies realize they're wasting huge amounts of money on these ads that are never going to supply them real eyeballs and real clicks to their, you know, their, you know, their brand or whatever. Um, I think that might, if they start losing real revenue, real revenue, like in the, in the neighborhood of like $50 billion a year, that might cause them to uh, start reevaluating their fraud models. You know, it's funny. I, I do work for a company called uh, Home Title Lock. And what they do is they, they monitor people's uh, home title, mm -hmm. right? So you're the title to your house. Uh, and, and if there's any change in public records, it notifies you, hey, you know, did you just transfer your deed or did you just, you know, refinance your house? Did you, because what happens is someone like me could come in very easily and file, I could take like one page and I can get rid of your mortgage. I just file what's called a satisfaction of mortgage. And I go downtown, I don't even have to go downtown. You just file it on online. You know, I can go, I can go sit in, uh, you can go sit in um, uh, Starbucks and I can, you know, you know, scan the document, I can send it and, and it gets recorded. So, and now, you, now if they pull the title on your house, there's no mortgage on your house. Hmm. So, and then I can file another, you know, you wait two days, whatever, and you file a, a transfer of, of title. So like a, a warrant, you know, there's different deeds, but a warranty deed showing that your deed to your house and your name has now been transferred to someone else. Or I could just get a, I could just, I could just order an, a fake ID in your name, but, mm -hmm. and sell it directly uh, in your name. But so anyway, you know, then of course you can go online and I could, you know, do a sale or, or refinance your house or transfer the deed and sell the house, whatever mm -hmm. case may be. So this company protects against that. What's funny is every time I'm interviewed about it, people are, are like, you know, well, why doesn't the government fix, like, is this fixable? I'm like, oh, it's absolutely fixable. Why wouldn't the government fix it? Why would they? Yeah. It, it costs the government nothing. They're like, yeah, but it costs, what are you talking about? It costs, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. This is done all the time. And this is the, yeah, but it costs the government nothing. The government didn't lend the money on your house. The government doesn't care if your house gets transferred. Like it, it's causing you a problem, not the government. So why would they change it? They go, okay, well, what about the title companies that insure your home? They don't insure against this. So once again, it costs them nothing. They ensure that the day of closing, that title is in your name, that there's, there's no, uh, uh, there's no encumbrances on your title and that, and that it's clean, your title's clean today. And we're putting it in your house, your name today. Now, if in two days from now, something happens, that's it. We, that's your problem. So the day of the, uh, of the closing, everything's correct. After that, it's on you. So once again, if this problem were to be corrected. So who's, it, who's at fault in that case? Is it the, the buyer? The buyer must, you know, eat it, right? Yeah. They, they, they basically have to go out and get an attorney and try and fix this. Now, if the house was sold, let's say the house was sold, let's say I, 
my house this scenario <laughs> well well let's say let's say suddenly your house is sold from underneath you one day some you know you start getting foreclosed on you're like what's going on oh well you're someone sold your house borrowed money on it didn't make the payments and now the bank's foreclosing on your house you're like the house is in my name they go no it's in the name john smith it was transferred two two months ago and Half a million dollars was borrowed on it, and there's never been a payment. And we're foreclosing. What are you talking about? You have to go get an attorney. So, is there an incentive? Like, if you start looking down the chain of everybody that's involved in this, nobody. It doesn't really cost anyone any money. So, there's no reason. There's no incentive to fix it. And in some cases, if you fix it, it would like if the title companies. Sorry. The insurance, the title insurance companies were to go to the public records and let's say devise some kind of a system or beg the government to fix this, the system and they fixed it. You don't need title companies anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, so why would they go out of their way to fix it? They would rather pay the claims because they make, so, there is so much money in title insurance. It is a cash cow. So why would I try and fix a system that we make billions of dollars on? Mm -hmm. Like, that's just stupid. The only person that this causes a problem is consumers or homeowners. Everybody else makes money doing it or makes money in this, in this whole thing. I mean, it's the same thing. It's like, it's like from the outside, you think, you know, the system and then you're, but once you're on the inside, you realize Oh, this is this this isn't correct at all. Like this is really very immoral and unethical at the very least. You remind me of a kind of a semi-related story um, about selling your house out from underneath you. This isn't this isn't the same kind of fraud, but uh, you'll see what I mean in a second. So this is kind of a happen to a friend of a friend of a friend sort of deal, but um, apparently. They knew that the the CEO of the company, is a smallish company, was leaving on a business trip, and he'd be on he'd be on an international flight for like whatever seven hours or 10, 12 hours, whatever it was, right? And so, uh, the night before, they delivered a bunch of like those pod type things um, filled with uh, cardboard boxes, tape, um, markers, that kind of stuff, right? Packing materials. And as soon as he was on the flight, they sent an email, spoofed from him to the entire company and said, okay, um, I'm sorry, I'm leaving on a flight. I'm not gonna be able to respond to anything, um, uh, but this sort of emergency situation, we had a problem with our lease. We need to move everything into um, into these pods because we're gonna have to move to a new location. Don't worry, um, I got it all sorted. I'll let you know more details when I land. But for today, get all of the stuff, put it in these pods, uh, pack everything up, uh, tape it all up. And if somebody doesn't show up to work, make sure that their stuff's packed up. It needs to be out of there by this time. Um, we have some drivers coming and they'll, they'll take it away. Uh, but it needs to all be done by this time, right? So everyone diligently packed everything up, taped it all up, write all what, who would belong to whatever, put it on the, in these pods or whatever. And they drove them away and they never saw that stuff ever again. Uh, you got the employees to burglarize mm -hmm. the business for them. Yes. Not he, but yeah. the, the, the burglars. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think, you know, losing all of every single asset of your company, 
I, I, for a long time, I thought that's the worst thing that can happen, but lo losing your entire house underneath you, I think might be the, <laughs> might oh, be yeah. the worst. <laughs> Imagine all you did was you place an ad in the newspaper to, to rent out your house. You rent your house to someone who's very qualified. Mm -hmm. They have the deposit. They've got canceled checks showing they paid their rent on time for years. They've got like just good credit across the board. They move in, they make three, four months payments. One day you don't get your payment. So you swing by the house to put a three day notice on the front door and you go to check the mailbox cause it's overflowing with mail. You pull it out and there's all these, there are all of these, um, uh, collection notices addressed to you and you go, well, that's weird. You open so they're addressed to you, you open it and it says that you know, whatever bank of America is foreclosing on you. Um, you know, SunTrust bank, uh, you know, Tennessee national bank, you know, uh, BB and T bank. And you're like, what, what is going on? I got five banks foreclosing on my house. How can I have any banks foreclosing on my house? I have two mortgages on my house. I have a first mortgage and a second mortgage. Come to find out the person you rented the house to moved in the house, created two satisfaction of mortgages with Bank of America for your first and your second mortgage, went downtown, filed those. Once the house was clear, made a fake ID in your name, called up multiple um, banks, and then borrowed $180,000 on your house. At the same time, within a day or two, closed on like five different loans on your house, borrowed a million dollars on your house. And pulled the money out over the next month or so, and then just moved. And you didn't figure it out until the, till you stopped getting your rent check and you get, come to find out that there's a million dollars worth of from there's five or six banks foreclosing on your house to the tune of nearly a million dollars. You didn't do anything wrong except for live your life and run that in the paper and just the cross the wrong person. Amazing. And that's, you know, that, that happens, that happens. God, I was reading a, reading one the other day uh, online. It's funny too, because I'll read these articles. People send me these articles all the time, especially if it's real estate related. And I'll read it and you read the article and I'm sure you 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 know this because you'll read an article differently than the average person, than your buddy who works, your buddy who works at Home Depot. You read that, if he reads that article, he's like, oh wow, that's crazy. And he understands in a generalized sense, but you read that article and you go, oh wow. They did this and this and this and this, and then they ended up, and that's how they got the money, and that's why it worked. Your buddy's like, I doesn't really understand, but he knows something went wrong. You know, so I'll get these real estate related ones where it's an article that basically says like a couple of people made half a million dollars. And, you know, by pretend and it says pretending to be a real estate attorney and a title company. Well, what really happened when you break it down is they rented an Airbnb for a week. They ran an ad in Craigslist and in, in multiple, di you know, uh, multiple different publications, websites saying that their house was for sale, that this house is for sale. People called up because it was under market value. People called up immediately, came out to the house and they were, they said, well, I can give you a contract, but we've got another contract pending. But if you were to put up $3,000 or $2,000 non-refundable, then obviously the owner would know, you know, they're pretending to be a real estate agent. Right. You know, 
the owner would know you were serious. So people are giving a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars. They're writing up a contract right then. They do this for the whole week. It ends up being half a million dollars. You know, they're taking, you know, who knows how big these deposits are. And they're depositing it into a, a bank account that they opened online in the name of a title company. And they're depositing the money. So everybody who's involved in this transaction thinks, I read an ad, I went and looked at the house, it was slightly under market value, I was very excited, I gave them a $5,000 deposit, then I turned around and started screaming, where's my money, you know, what happened, I haven't heard from this person, come to find out it's an Airbnb that had been rented for a week by a scam artist. It's crazy. They didn't do it, what did they do wrong? You know, what did they, like, like and where was their due diligence? I'm not sure. Like, how would they know anyway? What yeah, I mean, every time you're trolling all of the places you might advertise? I mean, right. And think about it. Every time you've ever sold a house, all you did was call a real estate agent or buy a house. You went to, you talked to a real estate agent. You went by the house. You met them. They gave you a business card. You didn't check to see if this was a real real estate agent. You didn't call the owner to make sure he really had this real estate agent listing their house. You didn't do any of those things. You just went through the process. Mm-hmm. scary yeah it is scary um i mean losing your livelihood is is right up there as well you know the only thing really beyond there is starting to get to the point where people are actually coming after you personally um and that does happen especially if you get involved with the cartels or like some of these more organized uh criminal organizations or spooks obviously yeah, a buddy of mine literally yesterday got swatted as a matter of fact um and uh you know he's one of those one of those guys who's just out there and just talking about stuff i wouldn't even say he's particularly contentious but you know he pissed off the wrong group of people and suddenly they gotta come after him you know and so you know he's you know has a whole bunch of police show up at his house with guns drawn you know <laughs> like pretty pretty bad news say did you 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 know, that one swatting that went wrong, right? Where the guy opened the door and they, they shot him. Yeah. yeah it's just, yeah. Some, it was just the wrong address. It was just a, an at wrong address completely. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, uh, they spoofed an email from him to the school district, um, claiming he was going to go shoot it up or whatever, you know? And, uh, so they shut down the school district and, um, raided his house. <laughs> Horrible. Horrible. <laughs> I mean, right? And that, I mean, that was attempted murder. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things kind of like that. I mean, there's some even creepier stories. Um, we, we've had to take down some, some pretty big groups. Like we took down an entire town in Romania once. Um, and, um, basically every male in the entire city went to jail and, uh, I feel and, like this is, I read, I feel like, remember I told you I, I had read the Wired article? They called yeah. it like Scam Town or something in the the name of it uh, where they were talking about the Western Union. There was like more Western Union per capita in that town than anywhere in the world. And they had, I remember in the article, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but no the, that they had two detectives on. Look, busting scam artists and they were like there's two of us mm-hmm. like there's only two of us like half the people in this in the town are committing scams right. and the big thing was they weren't that concerned and keep in mind this was 10 or 10 years ago i read the article they were like they weren't 
at least 10 years, honestly. It might have been 15 at this point. Yeah, that's so, so they were saying that that they they weren't that concerned because they weren't stealing from their own people. It was all internet-based, and they're stealing from foreigners, and they just weren't that concerned about it. Right. I mean, not that the detectives weren't concerned. They were genuinely concerned. Yeah. But they also said that, look, there's there's so little money here that, you know, that the most of the police work with these guys. They'll call and tell them, hey, you're going to get raided. Yep. You, you got about 12 hours before they show up. Yep. So, but you were saying it was. Yeah, it's, that actually dovetails nicely into the story. Um, so we, we actually sent a couple guys there um, to investigate just to kind of get a lay of the land. And um, and they were just at a bar kind of just kind of chatting with the the bartender and he's like, and like what do you do and you know for your spare time or whatever he's like oh internet fraud and uh you know it's like like even the bartender like even you know just some random dude you just like, like how like how is this your other job you know um and so we we ended up raiding this town they, basically every male in the town went to jail and uh the chief of police it wasn't the chief of police involved in it was not located in the town he was uh, somewhere in the main city uh and so uh about a, a couple of weeks later he disappeared and just li literally never showed up again um and uh, we're pretty sure that 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 group of people you're talking about the police that uh, were informants uh they needed to know how that happened and so like you can't let that happen again so figure you know go and torture this guy until you figure out how we actually got caught because that shouldn't have been possible. Um, so that guy, we never did find him, but, uh, yeah. So the world of internet security is like very closely related to organized crime. Um, a lot of, a lot of overlap, which, uh, makes it incredibly dangerous for practitioners. Yeah. I was going to say the Russians and, you know, Chinese and Russians and, a lot of those organizations will pull off scams that the Italian mob, you know, they just don't, you know, they don't, they don't get that sophisticated, but a lot of the companies, a lot of our, like the Russian mob and stuff will do really sophisticated types of frauds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, not that they don't sell drugs and do, you know, other things too, but it's, they'll, they'll do pump and dump schemes. They'll do have massive credit card, um, uh, you know, groups going around Europe, you know, hitting credit cards, doing credit card counterfeiting. Uh, I wrote a book about a a credit card counterfeiter that was working with the Russian mob. And I mean, he's like, they were ordering 50,000 credit cards at a time, or, you know, sorry, yeah, $50,000 worth of credit cards at a time, a hundred thousand. He's like, that's, that's unheard of. He's like your typical credit card uh, buyer or counterfeit credit card buyer. He's like, they're ordering 10 you know, 10 cards at a time at five bucks a card or $10 a card. He's like, they're not making huge orders. He, had, he was working with one guy that was literally, he said, just ordering massive amounts. He, he ended up having, I think he got two. I don't think he had three. I think he had, he had two or three, um, you know, the thermal printers that the, uh, the Fargo 2,500 or whatever it was, it's like a three or $5,000 printer. And you know, had the embossers and everything. And so he's massively making, sending out these cards. And sometimes they give him the, the information to put on the track. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, and it was all, it was all Russian and, uh, you know, Russians that were doing it. And they had, they worked with teams that would go throughout Europe and just hit stores and just buy up a ton of stuff 
And then there's these guys that work actually with the store owners sometimes. Yeah. Periodically, they'll come in and buy out a, you know, run up a bunch of, um, uh, a bunch of transactions that didn't actually happen. Yeah, I uh, I remember one story. It was a, I forget how they originally found this guy, but um, effectively they found a bunch of photos of of the uh, of the person that they were after. And this guy's like high profile, you know, scam artist or whatever. They really needed to find him, and uh, so they got a digital forensics expert to analyze the the photos. And so there's there's basically a photos of him and his girlfriend and some other guy on a vacation together. So they flew from wherever it was in Europe down to uh, Sharm el Sheikh uh, in Egypt, hung out there for a while, and then flew back. Basically, so it's it's like a two or three day vacation or something. And so, but it was just basically photos of, of of the of the trip, right? You know, you know him and his girlfriend sitting there taking photos of in their seats, you know, at at the hotel, whatever. But they didn't know where exactly it happened. They didn't know when. They didn't know how long ago, et cetera. And they need they really needed to find all this information. So, uh, so they they were able to track which what kind of airline, what kind of airplane it was, rather by virtue of uh, the photos on the inside. Uh, so they could tell it was this type of layout. So it was probably a Boeing, whatever, whatever, right? Um, and they were able to uh, tell what seats they were in by virtue of the photos. Um, then they figured out what hotel they stayed in because there was a photo of a bunch of drinks and you could see underneath a napkin, they could see the embossing of the, of the name of the hotel. Um, and then they had a picture of them at night and in the night sky, you could tell um, one of the planets or something. So they knew exactly when that occurred, like exactly. Uh, and then they, they found, a, there was another photo of them departing and, and uh, part of the coastline. So they knew what direction they had taken. So they knew the flight path, which was a correlating all that together. They knew exactly the inbound flight and the outbound flight. It must've been one of these five flights inbound. And it was definitely this flight outbound so that who was on both flights and they were able to figure out exactly who these were. And then they tied it, tied it back to a, uh, to a credit card that was used, um, to buy two things or three things, the, the flight the, the flights, a, um, a camera, which matched the XF data inside the, the photos, um, and, uh, and a rental car, and a car, a rental car, I think it was. But then with a the rental car, they were able to figure out where he went with the rental car because it had, you know, the the GPS stuff built into it or whatever. And that's how they nailed him. That's insane. Did you see um, the the documentary uh, Don't Fuck With Cats? Yes. <laughs> I was going to say that's that's very, that scenario yeah. you just gave me, very similar. Although, you know, those, they were pretty bad at that, actually. They, they ended up oh, getting somebody killed. I mean, it was... It was Pretty bad. Um, like you mean the people that were following him? Yeah, I mean the first half. Oh, I don't think I don't feel like they contributed to the murder. Uh, the the rewatch that man. <laughs> the first half of it is them accidentally getting someone else killed. Uh, it was pretty bad. Um, I mean, I'd have to rewatch it because I yeah. I thought they were just kind of tracked because he had killed the the yeah. kittens and so they were kind of just trying to figure out who yeah they, they 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 went after the wrong person uh, oh that's right initially they had named the wrong person mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you have to be really, really careful. You really have to know what you're doing. You can't just be some internet Wait, sleuth. That um, that person didn't. Did that that person get killed or kill himself? I think they committed suicide. But you know, that's come on. I don't know, man. I I I, I think I'm I mean, not picking myself out, no matter how much of a problem I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you have to be really, really careful with stuff like this. You really do. Like I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been down though. I've been, I've been involved with cases where um, everyone just got very excited about somebody rather than having good evidence on it right. and, you know, busted down doors and it turns out they were totally innocent. I'm like, why are you doing like it, just because you get excited, you really have to follow the real, the real evidence. Um, it's one of the reasons I'd make a terrible witness because I could caveat my way out of anything, you know? Um, like what is the possibility you got this wrong? Well, you know, statistically very high. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, how could you, how could you ever like tamper with this data? Well, incredibly easily, actually. Uh, so I don't, that's not what they want to hear when that they're is not what anyone wants to hear. They want to hear definitive. I saw with my own eyes. Yeah. I'm on a 100% positive. It was yeah. him. Yeah. Even though eyewitness testimony is almost Garbage. always inaccurate. Yeah. 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 So, um, I remember I, I was going to say, I was, I actually saw two guys break into a car one time right in front of me, but right there, like they're 20 feet away. Saw both of them clearly. When the cops showed up, I was. They were like, "Could you, could you um, tell us? You know, could you pick them out of a lineup?" I was like, "No." They're, you know, he was like, "Well, how tall were they?" I was like, "Tall." And they were like, <laughs> "They were like, well, how tall?" I'm like, "Look, I'm five foot six. Everybody's tall. Like, I couldn't tell you if he was five nine or six foot one. He was twenty feet away. He was a black guy. I don't know. And I, I looked at the cop. I remember the cop next to him was black. I go, it could have been him." I don't know. He's 20 feet away. My adrenaline shot up. I couldn't pick the guy out. It's not that I don't want to help. I called the police. Like, I want to help you. I'm the one that jumped out of the car and screamed at the guys. What are you doing? You know, and they took off running because they saw me and they yelled at me. And I, I, you know, instead of walking away, I was like, nah, bro, what's up? That's not your car. And they immediately just took off. So I was, I'm ready to help, but I'm also not going to stand there and point people out that I'm not positive that yeah. I don't know who those two guys were. They were two young black guys. Like, I'm not, I don't know. I, I would actually rather, as you know, even if they are absolutely guilty, I'd rather them get away with it um, than get someone who is totally innocent and put them in. Right. Trouble. I mean, yeah, I, I, they'll I get agree. caught some other way, some other time. You know, one of my old scammer buddies used to say, and I, I think it was very, very wise. He's like, look, you can be really, really good at uh, crime but you could only do one crime at a time. And mostly how people get caught is they're doing two crimes at the same time. You know, so they'll be speeding and they'll have drugs in the car. They won't get caught for the drugs. They get caught because they're speeding. And then the cops will pull them over. Like it was like weed in your car, whatever, you know, or they'll be like, drugs are very related. Often uh, they'll be extremely high first crime and then they'll go rob something. Well, then they make mistakes because they're high and they, you know, they kind of forget what they're doing and, even if drugs aren't involved, it, it's, it's criminals get cocky that every time I got away with something, I became emboldened by it and I got cockier and cockier and got, even, you know, you would think, oh, he just got, listen, I've been handcuffed, taken to a police station. They, the, I got walked, the head of Wachovia's fraud department screaming at the cops. This guy's committing a shotgunning scam. He is withdrawing multiple, he's got multiple mortgages on this property. He's withdrawing the money. It's a, it's a scam. He was absolutely right. I talked my way out of it. 
The police let me go, told them that there was a mistake at the bank. Loan officer must have made a mistake. I, I, my explanation seemed okay. It's, it was reasonable. He let me go. I took off. Um, uh, you would think I would have said, hey, I got away with it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely. Within a month or so, I was committing even more more egregious crimes because I just got away. Because all in my mind, it was, I'm just that good. They'll never, even when they got me in handcuffs, I talked my way out of it. And I know many, many people that are running multi, they're making millions of dollars a year. And they do something, this is actually my buddy's at. Actually is in the middle of committing a, a, a mortgage, a, a, a huge, not a mortgage scam, sorry, a huge scam. He's making hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's got half a million dollars in the bank. And he and his wife are on a little vacation and they check into a hotel for a week and they use a stolen credit card. You have half a million dollars in the bank. You can't pay $1,500 to rent a place for five days. Are you, in, are you kidding me? Mm. Are you kidding me? Well, what, he was like, well, why would I have a stolen credit card? I don't know. Maybe because if they were to go through the stuff in your room, they'd see that you're running a massive scam. Maybe that person gets notified and checks. Maybe like, why, why risk it? Yeah. That those are the time, you know, you get cocky and you think you're, you're above it and the rules don't apply. You're just that smart and you just, and you do two crimes. That's exactly <laughs> like, <laughs> you just screw up. Yep. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to be the best bank robber in the world or best uh, jewel thief in the world or whatever, you could totally do it. Like you really can do it. It's, I mean, I wouldn't recommend banks these days, but jewel theft, totally, hundred percent. You can totally do that. Um, you would just have to be the absolute best like ninja stealth dude in the world and really know your shit and know exactly how all these security systems work. And it would be a full-time job and no breaks, no vacations. This is what you focus on and getting the next big jewel, uh, jewel stuff done. This guy in Austin, just a couple of days ago, uh, he uh, got held down at a bar and he got his watch stolen. It's like a $300,000 watch or something, a crazy expensive watch. And they took an Uber home. It took a fucking Uber home, <laughs> you know, like, like you, you gotta be, you gotta, if you're really going to be good at crime, you really have to know what you're doing and you have to be truly professional. And I think that's the problem is everyone th wants to think it's the easy path. It's actually the hardest path. You actually have to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. You can, I, I used to always say, you know, you, the police can make a mistake over and over. They only have to, you know, be right once. Like they only catch you once, you know, they could keep making mistakes. Right. You know, you, you really can't make mistakes and, right. and that, and that's difficult to do because let's face it, if you were that diligent and intelligent and hardworking, then you'd probably just go get a regular job. Yeah, exactly. You know? And, and probably make great money doing it. Uh, right. if you're that, if you're that dedicated, you know, you, to your craft, you know, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most, I think most of the guys it's, it's, it's the, as a result of just, you know, of drugs and poverty and just, they don't know what else to do or have anything else to do. And it's certain things get taught that tax scam we were talking about a lot of the guys that I was locked up with, like they were taught that like they don't have the ability to do anything other than work at like a, a grocery store bagging groceries. Like they just, they don't have an education. They dropped out of high school. They were raised in horrible areas. They have nobody really mentoring them. And, but they've got a cousin that makes a lot of money committing fraud and he teaches them the step-by-step. -step. Here's what you do. You get this, you go to your friends and get, 
their social security numbers. You do this, you do, and kind of lays it out with them over the course of a week or so. Teaches them how to do it. They figure out how to do it. It works well for six months to 18 months, and then they get caught. And then they go to jail for five years, and they get out, and they learn even more stuff in jail. And then they, or prison, sorry, they get out, and it just keeps going and going and going. And now it's a, it's a, that's just a part of, it's a part of their life, going in and out of prison, committing fraud. Mm-hmm. Because for them, it's extremely lucrative. And they don't have, they don't have any other, there's no other avenue other than to go get a low paying job and, you know, stick it out. Like, so, yeah. I feel bad for him, but, uh, it's not the life It really isn't. Yeah. Oh no. It's uh, it, in with the, all the, with all the cameras these days and all this internet telemetry and everything you have phoning home all the time, like, oof, I just, I mean, it, it's, it's rough. I would really not recommend it. Or if you're in it and you're doing well, now's the time to think about your retirement. <laughs> it's not going to get better. It's going to get much, much harder for you very yeah. soon too. I've read a few articles on the original Silk Road, right? And, and uh, Ross, uh, Ross Albrecht. Yeah. Albrecht. Albrecht. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I know he got like a two or three life sentences or something and 30 years plus five life sentences or something along those lines. I mean, mm-hmm. and I know that, you know, I, I, I know the basics of it, I, uh, uh, you know, what he was doing, why he was doing, which I always thought was, was weird, by the way, because, I I've met, you know, just based on my past, I've met a bunch of guys like this that are super, super bright that for some reason they, they don't like, they have like, they're bright. They should be able to live a normal life, be successful. They have a couple of failures, which it seems to me like, like Ross had had a few failures and then he kind of just went off the grid. Like he, he just like, Things didn't fall into place for him. He didn't want to struggle in some way. And he suddenly decided, hey, I'm going to do something completely illegal and lucrative, even though he worked very hard at it. But I think the payoff came pretty quickly. He was also kind of one of those dudes who uh, he just maybe anarchist, you know, maybe kind of like I I feel like. He's he was bright like well, yeah, I very, think very it's bright. it's typically it's always some guy who's pretty sharp, mm-hmm. you know that that kind of leans toward that and, and it's like they're rebels, but it, he also had several failed businesses too, uh, wasn't it? And yeah, I don't I don't remember those details, but uh, but I do recall he ended up moving from Austin to San Francisco to I think kind of go out on his own and. I suspect at least half of it uh, because I actually know one of uh, his roommates. Um, he probably just wanted to be more isolated because he's starting to get the business is rolling and he's having to do more. And it's kind of hard to hide that if you've got roommates. Um, so I think that was at least part of what happened there. Was it part of the girlfriend at the time? Um, I don't know about that, but he was living with a girl, but uh, not. I don't think that they were romantically involved. Okay. Um, well, I mean, I know eventually he, he ended up getting arrested. I forget, was it the FBI or? Well, it was a, maybe it was sort of a customs deal. He was importing, um, a number of, you know, drugs and all kinds of stuff. But, uh, how he actually got caught was, uh, he tried to 
import a passport, a legal a set of legal passports. He wanted to create new identities. Right. And so uh, they they posed as the people who were shipping the thing. So they were basically a sting operation. And he ordered it from his own site. And then they just basically followed it to his address. And um, when they busted him, he actually had his laptop open and logged in to Silk Road. Uh, right. He had a notebook open with the passwords, uh, with his diary effectively, like saying everything he had done. And I mean, it was a very clear cut case. It was definitely him, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, I think he just didn't think they were going to be able to get to him. Right. Yeah, he he yeah. was using a, a, a server that was located in Iceland or, or something yeah. like he, he, he really felt like he was insulated and, and yeah. it eventually wasn't. Yeah. So you uh, we had talked about uh, Silk Road 2, and and the only thing I know about Silk Road 2 was that I thought it was just kind of a, I mean, obviously, you can name what your site whatever you want. Was It was kind of a copycat, copycat site mm-hmm. that had started, but I, that's all I know. Like, that's all I could find really on it was so it. So there, there was a bunch of there was a bunch of Silk Road twos. Uh, okay. A bunch of a bunch of different people tried to start it up over again, and I don't think it went anywhere. But um, so how I get involved in this story uh, was about two months after Ross got pulled into jail. I would say approximately, I started getting a series of emails from you know cartel members who wanted to start Silk Road two, and like let's let's do it. Uh, and I'm like, I don't, why, why are you thinking I would do have anything to do with this at all? And they said, well, we know that you're the real guy who ran the original Silk Road and Ross Ulbrich was just your patsy. Um, and why did they think that? Exactly. And I'm like, well, well, my answer was I'm not right. I'm not right. I don't know who you think I am. I I didn't do that. Like, yeah, they said, sure. And then I'm like, that's exactly what you'd say if you were the guy. Right. Well, that. Well, how do I get out of it then? Right. So, uh, I'm like, okay. Well, why? Why do you think that I am the real guy? And like, well, you probably met him when he was living in Austin because you live in Austin. I'm like, okay. Well, that sort of makes sense. Uh, you uh, wrote a your second to last blog post. I wrote about a thousand blog posts on my old uh, website, and the second to last one was sort of like. Um, what if you everyone if there was a possibility of ever taking over my security research that I was doing, maybe you'd use like my my handles R snakes. So you use like Dread Pirate R snake or something, and you could kind of continue the research forward with using my name. Except for I didn't really feel like that was a good idea because I think the research should stand on its own. I don't think you should tie it to any person. So I said I did. I actually didn't think that was a good idea, but. He's the Dread Pirate Roberts on the hacker on the Silk Road. I was talking about the Dread Pirate R Snake, Roberts, and I'm Robert. Uh, right. So that that naming thing, uh, there was confusion there. Um, I wrote some code a while back called uh, Slow Loris, and Slow Loris was uh, what's called a denial of service attack tool, and basically it was used to take down websites, and it it got a lot of publicity because it was used. Uh, during the Iranian Green Revolution to take down leadership websites. Um, um, and and the people who were doing the other types of attacks before my tool came out were taking down the entire country and causing all kinds of problems. So 
my tool was very specifically designed to be low bandwidth, so it didn't affect the rest of the country, so protesters could talk outside the country. Anyway, it got a lot of publicity. And so uh, Ross Ulbricht used Slow Loris to take down websites of com uh, competitors. Uh, so I wrote it, he used it. So that Okay, so there's, there is, I was just going to say, so there is a connection there because that was yeah. a lot of research. If there was no connection, I was like, that's a lot of research for a couple of, for some cartel guys to put together. Yeah, oh yeah. But but uh, there is actually, at least there is a connection. So. There There is a connection, although slight. Um, also, Silk Road was a very well-designed system. It was very secure. Um and uh, it took advantage of something called web application security. It you know, did a lot of things correctly to stop certain types of attacks. And my website was the web application security lab. So it stands to reason that he and I somehow were talking to each other all the time. And I was giving him advice on, he might've been the developer, but I was the guy, you know, puppet master behind it all. So not... <sighs> If I didn't know me and I didn't know the situation, I go, and if I had read this in like the New York Times or Washington Post or something, I'd be like, ugh, that sounds like he is the guy, right? Right. And so I'm like, well, that that's pretty good. It's not correct, but it's pretty good. Um, what would you do with it? Like, let's say, let's say I said no, and I don't want to help you out. What would you do with it? I'm like, well, we'd ruin your life. We'd spread this out everywhere that you could think of, and we would make your life a living hell, and you basically would never get a job, and you know, we'd follow you everywhere kind of deal. I'm like, okay, that sounds pretty bad. <laughs> so, well, okay, what what would you like me to do? And they're like, well, we'd like you to come and take over Silk Road 2 for us. And I'm like, okay, what does that entail? And they're like, well, we already have a server set up, so I'll, you don't know where it is, so we don't have to, you don't have to, we're not really risking anything by doing this. Um, so just go ahead and log into this server over here and uh, start building. And uh, when, it, when you're done, just kind of let us know and we'll, you know, start driving traffic to it. So, so, I mean, at this point, you you gotta be thinking you gotta you gotta contact the FBI. Um, I mean, you can't go forward with it. Well, <laughs> so here's what ends up happening. Um, so I go ahead and get access to the box, um, and it's on a Tor hidden service, so it's designed to stop guys like me from figuring out where it's located. And, but one thing I think that they didn't really understand is. One of my one of the things I'm very good at is decloaking things, figuring out where things are really located, figuring out who people really are. Uh, it's it's a you know there, you can have many areas of specialties in computer security that it just happens to be one of mine. And I am also a security researcher, so I find net new exploits, things that no one's ever seen before. And so I found an exploit in Tor Hidden Services and decloaked it and figure out where it really was. With that information, I then handed that off to people who cared about such things, um, namely Interpol. And so a couple months goes by and I don't hear anything. I'm like, I mean, I gave these people to you on a silver platter. I know exactly who they, they are. They don't, they don't and, act real fast. And, uh, and so I, I called up the people who care about such things and I said, hey, uh, what the hell? Like, what's going on? Uh, <laughs> are you going to do something about this or what? And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry about that, Robert. We probably should have gotten back in touch with you quite a while back. Uh, but don't worry about that guy anymore. That that uh, that guy has a job for the rest of his life. <laughs> so apparently that is a, a common tactic when they when they basically deliver somebody up like that. Um, effectively, they become 
a full-time employee of whatever government uh, jurisdiction they belong to. And so they now have an insider. So so they, I don't understand, they grabbed the guy mm -hmm. and now basically working for them. He's a, yeah. he's a CI now, yeah. but still in the organization. Uh, presumably, yeah. Well, because thus far he hadn't really, he had explored the possibility, but he hadn't actually done anything. You didn't build the site. You didn't. Well, he did try to blackmail me, um, and I am sure he had done many other things that once they started investigating him, they put a bunch of pieces together. So that was enough to get going, and now he works for them. So, yeah, I, I didn't end up building Silk Road 2, uh, uh, but it was, a, it was an interesting foray into that side of the world. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. I interviewed a guy uh, by the name of Cold Colby Cop. Uh, Colby Cop. Yeah. K-O-P-P, -P, I think. Mm -hmm. And he had actually, what did he do? He, he actually started a, a website, you know, uh, uh, which is common. And he, he had, he'd started a website and was, or was he starting the web? Did he start the website? Or was, I think he, no, no, that's wrong. He was just a vendor. He was a vendor on the website. That's right. And he was selling, um, he was selling different, a variety of different types of drugs. And he did this for forever. And at some point, you know, getting the drugs is obviously an issue. So it started with him getting drugs through a friend's father and who was like a connected to a biker gang. Well, those guys got busted a few of them. And so, but in the meantime, he'd been connected with a supplier out of Mexico and they were, you know, cartel. And then he eventually ends up meeting the guys from the cartel and they're, sh they're helping him. They're providing the drugs, which he's then, he's got a reshipper. Um, that's, re that's doing all the shipping for them. And I forget what, how long this went on for 18 months to two years. Mm -hmm. He eventually gets busted and, uh, he's in prison right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, I interviewed him just before he was sentenced and went to prison. So he'd pled guilty, but he hadn't been sentenced yet. And so he did the interview with me and then I told him I would not release it until after he was sentenced. So he was then sentenced and had like a couple months to turn himself in and, contacted me. He's like, okay, I was sentenced. I got, I forget what he got four or five years. And he said, go ahead and release it. So I released it, but he had a fascinating story. I think mm -hmm. his story, yeah, it, it's, it, it's very, it, it was very interesting. And he, he was great at, at telling the story, but it was the same thing. It was, well, he also had, um, it, it was, it was much, it was a very long, it was probably an hour and a half, two hour story, but it was great. It was a mm -hmm. really super interesting story. So um, the, the security community does have a lot of these kinds of stories in them. Um, you know, you, you almost can't avoid the criminal element because half of what we're doing is protecting against the criminal element. So half of the actors in computer security are the other side, right? Um, and that, that can take the form of nation states or it can take the form of uh, criminal actors, but it, it's, it, it is the other half. So when you go to computer security conferences, for instance, I would say, you know, you walk around and you're, you're going to run into spooks and you're going to run into criminals. Like it's just kind of the nature of the beast. 
And it's very hard to tell which one is which. They all kind of look just like sort of nerds running around, just having a good time and drinking too much. Um, but like one example I think would be worth talking about with your group here um, was the story of Paul LaRue. Um, and so like this guy, just a normal computer dork, you know, building some software. Um, the software was designed to basically protect people's computers using something called plausible deniability encryption. So the idea is, let's say you get busted by the cops and you really, really don't want to give up, you know, your super secret, uh, plans and stuff. You're, let's say you've got the nuclear codes in them or something like something terrible. Right. Um, well, there's several different ways that that can go down, uh, depending on where you're located. Sometimes they'll just beat you up a bunch. Um, sometimes they'll just put you in a hole and just, you know, wait it out until you get tired of being in there. Sometimes they'll threaten you, you know, there's a bunch of different ways that that can happen. But basically what it comes down to is typically they just need to know that you either do have it or don't have it. If they think you don't have it, then they're, their gumption to continue to punish you kind of goes down significantly. In many cases, they'll just let you go, especially in the United States. So, uh, but how do you get them to believe that you don't have anything if you've got this encrypted drive? Well, with plausible deniability encryption, you basically have this software that when you, someone comes beating you up, you can give them a different password than the main password and it'll decrypt and turn into something completely different. So, uh, so instead of the nuclear codes, it's, you know, your nude photos or something that you obviously would not want out. And so it makes sense why you defend that password to the point of getting beat up and whatever. Um, and it's plausible that you would want to use this software for such a purpose. Right. Um, and so therefore it is very likely that you will allow them to continue to beat you up for a prolonged period of time before you finally give it up. So you basically just hold out as long as you possibly can, give them the fake password to the other thing, and you can do multiple levels of this thing, right? So there can be many different levels of plausible method encryption. So maybe you start off with your tax forms. You're like, oh, I got it my tax forms. That's why I use it. And like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then like a month later, you're like, fine, here's my nude photos. And then maybe a month later, it's like, okay, well, yeah, I cheated on my taxes last year or something. And like, oh, that's why you've, you're holding out so much or whatever. So you don't, you never give up the primary thing you're really, really trying to protect, whatever, at the very bottom of this, these layers of these onions. Anyway, this Paul LaRue guy developed this software and, um, and it was pretty clear by his employer that he had more or less stole it from them and was making it himself and like selling it on the side. Uh, so they, they wanted to come after him and, uh, and get, you know, extract their pound of flesh for, for intellectual property theft. And so he fled. He just left the country and uh, and kind of disappeared. No one knew what happened to the guy. So years and years and years and years go by. And uh, where did he go? No one knows. Uh, well, at the time, at, at the time, no one knows. It just kind of disappeared. So years and years go by, and there's this piece of software that's on the internet called TrueCrypt, and all security people kind of know it exists. Many of us use it. Uh, I use it. A bunch of people use it. I know. If you're in my world, you're you're probably using it or something very similar. Um, and someone at some point said, where did this software come from? Who who wrote this thing? Like, why are we all using this thing? No one even knows who the author is. Like, what shouldn't we shouldn't we be asking this question? Like, we're all using this thing. What is that vulnerabilities in it? You know, is it written by spooks? Like, we gotta find out. Like, someone do an audit on this thing. So it was sort of all hands on deck because we kind of all realized how vulnerable we were by virtue of not knowing anything about the software. 
So we all do this research and it turns out there's a couple small issues with it. Nothing really crazy. Just like, uh, like you'd have to be like a local user on it to attack another local user. So it's, it's really not a particularly big deal. Um, but at the same time, we're all like, okay, but we can't rely on not knowing who this person is. So we, uh, the industry created a new one called Veracrypt. So it's basically a copycat of the old one. And silently, TrueCrypt said, don't use TrueCrypt anymore, use Veracrypt. It's like, okay, well, I guess whoever wrote it, it agrees that the new version is better and they weren't a bad actor in this context. Um, around the same time, some some investigative journalists start digging into this case and like trying to figure out like what is going on with this software? Like, it's so weird. Well, they track it back to uh, this guy named Paul LaRue, who they think is the guy. Now, Paul is a very interesting character. So uh, grew up at... This is this is the guy who disappeared, right? And uh, so we know that this is this guy has built similar software that does a similar thing, and um, they start tying it to a bunch of murders of real estate agents in different countries, like the Philippines, and um, and it was kind of like unclear why anyone want to murder these these random uh, Filipino <laughs> like uh, you know real estate agents, these women, like why 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 is this happening? Well, they track it back to these two guys who are hitmen um, and who had fled the country immediately afterwards. They had spent a multiple days with her, like like going around, like checking out places until they, I think they knew enough about her before they killed her. Um, the, the, the second one, Catherine. Maybe they just got to know her. Yeah, I don't know, but they they, they definitely they definitely had it out. If you've, you've known enough real estate agents, so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they basically tie it to another murder that's almost identical, and they realize that this is this is a serial thing. Um, they kind of figure out that uh, the second murder, uh, I think her name is Catherine Lee, uh, she was killed because uh, there was another deal that happened with some that some of that she introduced to Paula Rue's team, who was supposed to embezzle a bunch of money, buy a piece of property for like fifty million euro or something um I, I forget if that number's correct but whatever some very large sum of money the deal fell through that guy fled the country with the money and so they're like they have to kill somebody uh to you know send a message that this is never gonna happen again and so they killed her and so a similar kind of thing happened with the previous real estate agent where she had done something hinky and they had to kill her as a result so this had been a, a group of real estate agents across uh these different island nations or whatever so then they start tracking it back to the hitman and who are these hitmen? And then the, where did they get their orders from? And they kind of backtrack it to uh, this army ranger, this former army ranger uh, that had had a lot of PTSD and sort of had joined up with this guy, this uh, this dude, uh, Paul LaRue. And so uh, <laughs> and they realize that this guy's been like a hitman for him for years. And so he does contract killing for him. Um, and... And then they start really investigating this guy. They flip him uh, and they start going after Paul like through this guy. And it turns out he's like one of the biggest arms dealer and drug dealer in the world. Like he supplied the Somalis um, with a bunch of guns and ammunition. Uh, he supplied Iran. Uh, he had his own fishing boats where he would like, I mean, like, su like supply missions to different regions. Bunch of different arms deals around the country, around the uh, world rather. Uh, really fascinating story. And, and he's just a computer guy. You know what I mean? So I think 
I think when you're thinking about computer security, you kind of have to kind of blur your eyes a little bit. It's like, yes, computer security, yes, but blur it to think about morality. Like morality can flip very easily depending on, you know, circumstances and people's disposition and the economic situation and so on, which is why you see a lot more of that kind of crime in drug-related situations where people are like hard up for cash or in uh, less economic-friendly zones, uh, Middle uh, Middle Eastern and uh, Eastern European type countries. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it it's so hands-off now, or it can be hands-off now where, you know, dealing drugs or a, a lot of things, you know, just based on as a result of the the internet it's it's everything's like so remote now you can be in the safety of another country or it seems i was gonna say it seems like you could be in the safety but the truth is is all these guys are oh well i used a you know v, uh you know vpn or i use this or they don't know this they'll, they'll never figure this out and then they always end up grab not always but they they end up tracking these guys down mm-hmm. but it's not like they hacked into the computer system it's typically because and you know, they start following their email address or they use the same nickname mm-hmm. and they start tracking all these different places and websites where this name has shown up and they read enough about it and they build a little dossier. And before you know it, they're like, this guy lives in, you know, whatever, Dallas, Texas. He's mm-hmm. got to live in this area. He, you know, we believe he goes to this barber. You know what I'm saying? You're like, how did you figure this out? It's like, okay, well, there were these little, you know, breadcrumbs left all over the internet that he never thought anybody would piece together. And then next thing you know, you you they figure it out and they're 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 at your front door. And you're like, I don't understand. I was I was using, you know, there was a the um the server was in another country. I used a different, you know, whatever, you know, different address, a different this, a different this. Yeah, but there's these little things that put it all together is really detective work. I mean, super yeah. interesting detective work that typically gets these guys that feel like they're so safe. Yeah, that that is exactly how I uh, broke one of the largest, um, I don't know how to use these words without using these words, but CSAM group um, uh, in the world, um, child pornographers uh, in right. the world. Um, I will, I will try to you. I will try to say the story without actually using those words. I don't want you to get demonetized. <laughs> right. That's fine. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, uh, you're good. You want to just say, uh, um, let's go with, uh, uh, what SOs. Uh, sure. Um, Is that good. No. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, so, uh, effectively there was this group that, um, called themselves P you know, that word you, uh, for university, and it was sort of a dual entendre kind of meant like uh, there are young kids right. uh, that we're going to be doing bad things to, but also we will teach you how to do it. Um, so um, it was a pretty big organization, like well, maybe a hundred or more different people in it. Um, and so we were trying to track them. I had a anti uh, that P word uh, group. <laughs> um, uh, it was called the ethical hackers against that P word. And so, uh, what we found, we were just basically monitoring the group forever and everything was encrypted. So you can't really see anything or very rarely could see anything every once in a while, something that sneaked through. But, um, but one of the guys, one of the main guys who ran the whole thing, uh, 
he had to, there's a there's sort of an initiation process where they have to teach you how to use the tools. So people come in and they're just like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And so they kind of have to say, okay, if you want to do this, here are the tools you need. And you know, you're going to have to learn how to do this and you got to start doing what you're doing over here because we can tell who you are, blah, 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 blah. And then you you evolve into this thing where you are much more difficult to track. And so this one guy, uh, and, and part of that is using proxies and hack machines and that kind of stuff. So you're not coming from your own IP address. So this one guy joins and he's new. And so he's, he's talking in an unencrypted chat at this point, which is pretty typical. And one of the heads of the, of the thing posts and he's like, whoa, dude, it's so weird. You're like, uh, you probably like live on my street. Hell, you're probably my next door neighbor. That's so weird or something like that. And I'm like, wow, what is he talking about? Cause he didn't say anything related to where he lived or whatever. And I'm just like, what is going on? I don't, I don't understand how, how he would know that from looking at the, for this message. And I was just, you know, bugging me for days. I was thinking about it. And then I started looking at the mail headers. Like maybe there's something in the mail headers I missed. And I realized, Oh wait, that guy isn't using a proxy. Yet. He's not using a hack machine yet. Um, and so at this point he hasn't committed any crimes, but, or at least not that I've seen, uh, but his IP address is a real IP address of a real person that he hasn't been encrypted or hasn't you know, been protected. Or even if it has, it doesn't matter because the other guy's looking at that IP address and realizes it's probably almost identical to his IP address. Maybe it's one number off or something. Uh, and now so, you know the area that that guy. Now I know exactly where he is. So all I need to do now is look for you know anybody who's connected to anything on that you know block or whatever, which is very easy to get a subpoena for. And that's how we broke the case. And then so we busted like over 30 dudes. Um, like, as you imagine, doctors and lawyers and, and all kinds of stuff. They probably ended up in Coleman with me. <laughs> but you'd be, you would be shocked how many uh, school teachers, principals, uh, guys that worked at NASA um, that you would meet and you're just like, you know, wow. How do you end up in here? Right, right. They always have a, a different reason. They're always, they always pick fraud. They're always like, oh, I'm here for fraud. It's like, it's, come on, but don't. Don't take, don't take my crime, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it always breaks down so quickly. Because once you say, well, what'd you do? They can never really quite tell you. They can, you know, oh, I was, I was, uh, it was credit card fraud. They charge you with credit card fraud. Yeah. There is no crime. There's no credit card fraud crime, you know? Right. So, yeah. And then they try and tell you, well, what they were doing with the fraud or, or the credit cards. And it never makes sense. Like, it's mm -hmm. like, stop it. You know, this is, you're clearly not here they, yeah. they know they can't pull off drugs mm -hmm. you know because they're not even going to come close to drugs right yeah um but well, probably yeah. a good one i mean there's lots of white collar fraud out there um it's it's just amazing these sites that are like there were guys that were paying four or five hundred dollars a month to be a part of a site you know to look at you know underage kids and it was like like that's a car payment yeah right you know it's it's like this is there's a real issue here. It's also, by the way, one of those things from the other side, from actually trying to stop it. It's one of those things you cannot unsee. Like once you've, you know, I will, I will, I will spare your listeners some of the more gory details, but you know, but you're watching people like pay-per-view rape type stuff, you know, right. like you get to tell them what to do. And you know, it's, it's pretty, unbelievable and these are not kids like you're thinking like maybe you know 12 years old 10 years old something like that these some of them are not even walking yet you know what i mean yeah. and so it's pretty pretty fucking horrifying but 
um, yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll spend whatever, uh, they'll spend whatever to, to do it and they'll put themselves in massive harm's way. And, um, <clears throat> there was another case I was involved with. This is years later. I, I had to take it. I had to distance myself from that organization. Uh, it was just too much mental stuff on me personally. Like it was, yeah, the amount of depression I experienced <laughs> seeing this stuff is uh, kind of off the charts. But uh, so a couple of years passed and I got a call from, or actually an email rather from, actually it was even weirder than that. It was a text message to a form that was logging a bunch of information on this old hacking website that I had set up years and years earlier. Um, and I even, I thought it was gone. I thought it didn't exist anymore, but it still worked. And so I got a text message um, and, um, and, a, and, a, and a associated metadata about this person who basically said, Hey, Robert, we need to get in touch with you. And it's like, I, you know, we're from the FBI or Homeland Security. And I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> no way. Full of shit. Uh, but sure enough, it really was. And so I was working at eBay at the time and, uh, I'm like, well, I, I don't have time to meet with you. You're like, no, we need to meet. Sorry. It, like, it's going to happen. Like, like today kind of deal. I'm like, well, I'm at work. I'm like, well, we'll come to your work. Oh fuck. So they, <laughs> they show up at eBay offices and, and eBay offices, for those of you who are not familiar with like big corporate environments, you know, there's a, there's a receptionist, there's 10,000 people walking around, like going different places and like, you know, coming in and coming out and, and here's the FBI just like walking straight through the front door. And I'm like, I gotta get you guys into a conference room right away. Like people are gonna start asking questions. I mean, I worked in security. I was gonna say you're in security. It's not yeah, like yeah, but I was on the product side of security, not on the investigative side. And so you say I'm a big shot. The FBI yeah. needs my help. It's yeah, yeah. I, at that time, I was new enough that they I couldn't pull that off. Like <laughs> you don't know anybody. There's no reason for you to be talking to the FBI. At least not then. Later on, yes. But um, so anyway, they come into my office. Uh, in this conference room and uh, they're like they're like we believe there's this there's this guy who may know you possibly and I'm like okay well why why do you think that like well because we arrested him for this stuff and I'm like okay what does that have to do with me he's like well he claims that you told him to put malicious software inside images um, something called the GDI plus exploit and I'm like, okay, I definitely didn't do that. Um, that exploit had just came out, by the way. I'm like, definitely didn't do that. And he's like, well, uh, he claims you did. And uh, and so we're just curious if you if this rings any bell. I'm like, well, no, can you give me his name and his handle? I'll go look at my, all my email because you never know. I, I've talked to thousands of people. So it's right. all right. So I'm like, give me, give me a day or so just to go through all my old email and see if I can find anything old chat messages or anything I can think of that might have the name in it. And sure enough, nothing. There was never anything about this guy. So I call him again. I'm like, okay, well, let's meet up again. So they come back to the office, shuffle them back to the same conference room. I'm like, okay. So I found out two interesting things. First of all, no, I don't know the guy, or at least not under these two names. Maybe he's got a different alias or something, but not anything you gave me. But secondly, that GD, GI plus exploit, <clears throat> when did you say you arrested him? And they're like, we arrested him two months ago. I'm like, well, that's funny because that exploit came out one month ago. Um, so he has been doing a ton of research trying to find his alibi. And he realized that, oh, there's this thing about exploits and images because it was just kind of coming out 10, 10, 15 years back. And, uh, and so he leveraged that to try to convince them that that was a plausible defense that I had told him. And he didn't think anyone's going to go get in touch with me because I'm a hacker and there's no way. And, and I was actually pretty stealthy back then. 
And, uh, <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to go to court and say this is impossible. So either he came up with the exploit or someone that he knows came up with the exploit. And I guarantee you, they're going to like, I can get in touch with those guys. They're going to say that they never heard of this guy either. Cause you know, they're not going to release it to some random guy. And, um, and so they went off and, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe a month or so goes by and I'm like, like I call him up. I'm like, what's going on? And you never got in touch with me. And like, Oh, Oh, another one of those. We should have probably gotten in touch with you about this. Yeah. So the second we told him that you were willing to testify against him, he flipped and right. immediately he's going to go after all of his friends. And, um, so, so the way I, what I understand, cause it was, he was, he was obviously trading, um, CP. Yep. Right. And then when they caught him, he was trying to say, no, no, I was working with someone and we were trying to bust the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And we were, uh, he, we were talking about him putting this in the images to help destroy them or track them. Or so I'm not involved in this. Right. I was trying to bust the organization. And then they talked to you and you were like, that's not what happened. <laughs> okay. But okay. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm sure that there's a, yeah, I'm sure that the immediately trying to wiggle your way out of that. And, right. I mean, anything you can think of at that point, but, uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a pretty plausible defense, uh, and not that it would have saved him, uh, which is the other kind of stupid thing about that defense, but at least, at least he could have made it seem like he was not getting off on it. You know what I mean? There's a right. sort of difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Shoot, I was gonna say these. Uh, uh, I, I knew a guy who'd set up a server, um, and they were they were trading images, and he was charging for it, and it was supposed to be completely, um, you know, uh, 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 anonymous. And when they eventually do catch, they track down the server, they catch the server. They they he he had it in like a a rented office in someone else's name. All these things precautions. He had taken. Well, they eventually track it, but they still end up getting him. Yeah, and uh, they grab him and everything. And his whole thing was like, "No, no, I was setting it up, but it, I didn't realize they were going to be using it for this reason." And you know, it, it's it was too late. He ended up getting like fifteen years because, of course, the, what people don't realize is that you know, one, it it's like possession, mm-hmm. like yeah, possession. You, you just have possession of it. Like you, you don't you don't even have to you know you it, it was on like there's no defense at that point. Because the the charge is, did you have possession of it? Mm-hmm. Yes, I did. You know, I didn't make it. I didn't this, but I did have it on my computer. You're done. Like I think the mandatory minimum is like three or four years. Yeah. You know, and then of course the images, all the different images, you get can get charged with every single image. Yep. So and and they're getting easier and easier to find because there's uh companies like Apple out there. If you use iMessage, for instance, or sorry, iCloud rather. Uh, all of your images are uploaded into their servers and they're doing hashes on those things. And so they have hashes of, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of images or whatever that have been collected and, and uh, cataloged. So they don't have to store the original image, but if they see that image crossing the wire, they immediately let uh, law enforcement know. Facebook is doing something very similar. They're actually the largest producer of um, reports on earth. And, um, and I, uh, you wouldn't really think it. it's like Facebook, like why, but they also own Instagram and a bunch of other properties. Um, and, uh, and they do this, something very similar. They just look at these hashes. So, 
uh, unless you're very, very, very good at protecting yourself, uh, you're pretty likely to get caught these days. It's it's getting, and now when when we did our bust uh, at EHAP, um, we had the largest bust in history that I'm aware of, um, largest one I'd, I'd ever heard of at the time. Uh, but now innocent images they'll bust like a hundred people at a time, and not. 101 or 99, exactly 100 every single time. And I think there's a reason for that. They need to make sure that uh, if you didn't get busted, there you could have been 101. You know, you could have been the next one on the list. They just, you know, they're just going down the list of the most easy at first. That doesn't mean you're not going to get busted next year when they go and they start going the next 100 batch of 100. So they're busting 100 people at a time now. And uh, yeah, I, I, w- I would not... It's, there was a time when I think you probably could have gotten away with that fairly easily. And I think that time is quickly diminishing. Well, listen, I, I, I'm sure you have other things to do. A few. So <laughs> I, I appreciate you giving me this much time. I, yeah. I really do. Like, I really in, enjoy talking to you. Yeah, um, yeah. thank you very much. And, uh, um, you have a book, right? Yeah, I'm uh, in early stages of uh, getting it through the editing process. Oh, that's right. Uh, we talked about that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it'll be called AI's Best Friend. And uh, it's a pretty pretty crazy read if you're into the idea of artificial general intelligence as opposed to artificial intelligence. The, the part where it becomes sentient or you know close enough to sentient, we can't tell the difference. And uh, therein lies some dragons, my friend. It is, it is a gnarly bit of business when you start talking about hallucinations and something that's smarter than you are. Well, when you, I mean, when it is actually going to come out, uh, you should, we should do another uh, episode. You yeah, I love that. I'll grab the book and I love that. Pitch it and... Yeah, great. Hey, I appreciate you guys watching. If you like the interview, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button, hit the bell so you get notified of videos just like this. Leave me a comment in the comment section. Also, in the description box, I have left Robert's YouTube channel, and it is, I think it's The R Snake Show, and uh, the link is in the description. I really appreciate it. Also, do me a favor. You know, if you can swing it, I would appreciate it if you would consider joining my Patreon or possibly buying one of my true crime books. Once again, I really appreciate you guys watching the show. See ya.